Have you ever gotten in trouble for sighing? Yeah, my name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. And over the course of my life, at every life stage, I have gotten in trouble for sighing. Parents, friends, my own kids, my own wife. And I've realized this week as I'm preparing to talk about this that I'm a little bit of a moron because I've been using the same defense the whole time, the whole time, and it hasn't worked once and I haven't changed it up. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'll sigh and there'll be some pushback for it, like, what are you doing? And I'll say, but I didn't say anything. And they say back to me instantly, you didn't have to. Ever been there? Have you ever had that happen to you where somebody kind of pushes back against your sigh? Uh, I have, and when it happens, I find it uh, quite enjoyable. So what I did this week was I decided to go and look and see if they were right. Because I've heard that 90% of communication is nonverbal communication. Have you heard that? Here's what I found. It's bogus. It was one study... It was a bad study, and it's misquoted, but it's been out there so widely spread that people believe it. It's not true, which made me really happy because I was hoping maybe I could stand here and say, all of the trouble that I've gotten in for sighing is baloney. It's wrong, except I know that when I sigh, I am trying to communicate something, and so do they. So I'm just curious. I'm curious. How many of you, like me, have gotten in trouble for sighing sometime in your life? Would you show your hand? Lots of guys, yes, but not all. Okay, that's good. Uh, Answer this. Have you ever become upset because of a sigh that was given in your direction? Anybody there? Oh, yeah, lots of hands there, too. All right. Um, I'm counting on uh, your ability to understand what a sigh means and doesn't mean this morning. So I want to give you just a little time to practice it before we get into it. Because it's going to become important with where we're going. So here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to put up some emojis on the screen that represent some different emotions. And I want you to pick one of those and turn to the person next to you and give them that sigh. And see if they can guess which sigh you're communicating. And then have them do it back to you. Okay, so pick an emoji, give it a shot, see if you can communicate your emotion with a sigh. Go for it. Don't worry, it won't take long. We won't let you do this a long time. I don't want to get the note after church, hey, this dude was heavy breathing next to me. No, that's not what's happening. It's just a sigh. I want to know how many of you got the sigh right. How many of you are able to figure out the sigh? Okay, there's a few. How many of you are in trouble right now for sighing? Yeah. You're like, what did you just say to me? I didn't say anything. You didn't have to. And then it begins. Um, You know, one of the reasons it's hard to just pick out a sigh that somebody's giving to you is oftentimes we rely on context. When did that happen? What just happened when that person sighed? What's going on in their lives that I know about and I use all of those clues to tell me what that sigh might mean? We're gonna use that detective skill that you have today to figure out some sighing that we find in the scriptures. It's actually in a weird place. It's in the book of Mark. 
Uh, Mark is the shortest gospel. Uh, He doesn't waste a lot of time on details. He gets right to the point. He doesn't drift very much. And yet, twice in the book of Mark, sighing is recorded. And so I want to show it to you, and then I want to talk about why we're going to spend some time on it. So this is Mark chapter 7, verse 34. This says, He, this is Jesus, looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, which means be opened. So we find Jesus in this place. We'll come back to this section of scripture where he sighs deeply and then speaks a word, speaks one word. In a a chapter over, this is chapter 8, verse 11, we find the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign. Show us something miraculous. Do something that we can look at and say, wow, you are who you say you are. Give us a show. Verse 12 records, and he sighed deeply. Now Jesus will go on to say some words after this too. And that's what's really nice about what we're about to explore here and is that we have some context. There's a lot of stuff that helps us kind of figure out what's going on so that as we start to understand what these sighs are all about, we'll have some help from the text to get us there. Why, why are we spending some time on sighs? Well, one, for whatever reason, uh, Mark was inspired by God to record these. So they must be important. They, so we're going to spend some time on that. And the reason I think they might be important is that they're going to start to reveal to us the heart of God, his character in some instances. And, and you might say, but Blair, if we wanted to look at the character of God, we could just go look at what Jesus did, look at what Jesus said. There's all kinds of action stuff. In, in this, all he does is sigh. There's no words that he used. He didn't have to use words. That, that feels pretty good. I'd like to be on the other side of that more often. Um, he doesn't have to, right? I've never been able to say that. I did this morning, but here we go. I want to take you back into the text and understand why he didn't have to say words for this to be important and valuable for us. So let's start with a backstory in chapter 7. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is taking a long trek. Let's put up that sign. He's up in Tyre. He actually goes further up into Sidon. None of this is Jewish territory. He's hanging out with people who are not of Jewish descent. He um, twirls around. He comes all the way down here to the Decapolis. There were 10 large Greco-Roman cities. This would have been um, a place where there were some Jewish um, small cities. Think of uh, the prodigal son. That story would have been probably been told there because they had these gigantic cities that would have attracted these kids who felt like they lived in Podunk Village. It would have been told in this area. But most of the people who live here are Romans. They think like Romans. They act like Romans. And Jesus is spending some time with people who are not Jewish. And he ends up on the the capitalist side. And here's what happens. This is in chapter 7, verse 32. There are some people brought a man to him who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Compassionate crowd, right? They picked out a guy in a pretty desperate situation. 
unable to hear, barely able to communicate, most likely was a beggar. And they had spent some time watching this man try to survive. They knew what Jesus was capable of, and they brought this man to Jesus. Please understand, we're likely talking about Romans who are doing this. So they bring him to Jesus, and they say, just touch him. What we've heard about you is that you can heal this guy. And so it looks like what we've got going on is a really compassionate crowd. In verse 33, after he took him aside, away from the crowd. Why? Why would Jesus do this? If he's trying, if he's trying to make the case that he's Messiah, that God has given him abilities, why wouldn't he heal him right there in front of everybody? Get the press, make a big splash, let people talk about this. It's kind of a big deal. I, I, would, I would like to present this idea. The crowd was not compassionate at all. What they thought they had on their hands was a sideshow freak, and they were going to get to see something great. In fact, here's what I think would have happened. If Jesus would have healed him in the crowd, the crowd would have gone, that is so awesome. Who else can we find? Like, who else is messed up? Let's find somebody worse. Let's see how far he can push this. They don't care about him. They're using him. They're using somebody who is down and out. And Jesus recognizes what's going on. So he takes this guy and he pulls him aside out of the spectacle. And out of the spectacle with nobody around. He continues in verse 33 and he says this. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And it's after he does these things that the scriptures record that Jesus sighed and then said, be opened. Be open your ears, be open, be able to talk. So we have this moment of deep sighing. And if we are starting to look at the text and try to put together context for what that sigh meant, what do you normally deep sigh over? Have you ever done it out of exasperation? You were just, you didn't know what else to do. I'd, I'd like to suggest to you that I think Jesus did this out of sadness, out of dis, disappointment, probably out of exasperation. And there's two things in the text that tell me why. He just got done with a crowd of people who brought him a sideshow freak for their own pleasure. And it wouldn't have mattered if he would have healed them, they wouldn't have believed. By the way, after he heals this guy, he's gonna walk back into that town and they're gonna know Jesus did it, but is that what they wanted? No, they wanted to see it. They wanted the experience, they wanted the spectacle of it all. And he realized that it didn't really matter what he did, these people were withholding their hearts from him. And I think, it broke his. The other thing that I think you could look at in the text and say maybe he sighed deeply for this too, I think it was both of these reasons, is that he's looking at a man who's been broken by sin. Sin entered the world, causes all kinds of a mess, and now this guy bears the weight of that. Can't hear, can barely talk, he's barely getting by. This is not the life that God had in mind when he created mankind and wanted us to step into the life that he had made. And this guy was so far from that. Just think about this for a second. Who 
was Jesus' sigh meant for? The crowd's gone. They're nowhere to be found. It's not the deaf guy. He can't hear. We know that one disciple recorded this. One. So who was he sighing for? I, I think maybe there are two explanations that make the most sense for me. One is he was sighing to God the Father. Oh man, my heart is broken. My heart is broken for this crowd. My heart is broken for this man. I'm exasperated. I've done everything I can and they will not let me touch their lives. But I think it's possible that he just sighed deeply because he was so broken and so disappointed that that's all that was left to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, you got to a place and there were no words anymore, there was nothing else and all you had was just a sigh, a sense of disappointment about what was happening. I think what we're seeing here is Jesus revealing a heart of compassion for a group of people. Now let's leave this Let's keep this in the back of your mind and go to chapter 8. We're going to deal with a completely different group of people. These are Pharisees. These people are righteous beyond measure. You would be lucky to have the same moral character as they did. Jesus said they were incredible at that. Yes, they were arrogant. Yes, they had lots of rules to follow. Yes, they made up lots of rules. But they were morally sound people. And Jesus will point out, man, they're, they're pretty terrific. But they came to Jesus... And said, show us a sign. Do something for us. And Jesus kind of knew that it really didn't matter what he did. In, In other parts of the text, he would say about this group of people that he could raise somebody from the dead and it wouldn't have impacted them. In fact, he did. He raised Lazarus from the dead. How many Pharisees ended up on Team Jesus after he did that? Very few. And so he's dealing with a group of people whose hearts are far from him. Whose hearts are far from him. And he says this. He sighs deeply in verse 12. And then he says, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given it. Did he just give up on them? You just write them off, count them out, he's done, doesn't really care about them anymore, is that what's going on? Or is what's happening that he's just come to the realization that these guys have such hard hearts that it doesn't matter what he does, they're not going to be inclined towards him. They're not going to care. You know what's kind of ironic about all of this stuff? If you go back to the first story, the irony is that the the person who was a beggar and the crowd had the same ailment, the same ailment as the Pharisees in our story did too. See, the beggar, he couldn't hear, but he knew it, and he was broken and he was a mess. And unless Jesus did something for him, he was going to remain that way. But the crowd, they were broken and they were a mess because they refused to hear. And so were the Pharisees. We're refusing to hear what you have to say. And they were a broken mess, unable to face it. And because of that, they were in a difficult spot. 
And what we find in the scriptures is twice. In the face of that, Jesus sighing. And I think it reveals his character when it comes to this group of people. And, and this is why I think this is important. If you're paying attention in our culture at all, you're going to find that there are different stories of Jesus being told. Some of them have been around for a long time. And if you would go and talk to a person who is outside a church, who've never stepped a foot inside, they would tell you this story of Jesus. They would tell you this one because it's so popular, it's so widely said. Um, God, Jesus, like together, they're just angry. They're angry, they're vindictive, they're out to punish. They're keeping track and they're going to settle scores. Do what they want or you're going to face punishment. And whole groups of people have understood that this is the heart of God. That this is the way God chooses to interact with us. And here's the reality. I believe there's a place called hell. It's real. And that people will choose to go there. What I want to know is how does the God of heaven that we worship, how does he interact with those people? What does he do with their lives? Because there are some people who have not made a decision to follow Jesus yet. That's what a Christian is. I'm going to choose to follow you. I'm going to take your values. I'm going to take, I'm going to take your moral, moral stances. I'm going to take you, make you the center of what I do, and because of that, it'll change everything for me. Some people haven't done that yet, and they haven't. Because the story they have heard is that it's an angry, vindictive God, and they don't want to sign up for that. And so they hold God at arm's length, afraid to get close to somebody who might tear you to pieces and just lob you into hell just to prove a point. The beauty of the scriptures, at least in my opinion, is that when you're making a decision about whether you want to engage with God and understand his character, he knew that one of the things that we would struggle with is that we can't see him, we can't touch him, we, we have a hard time putting our minds around what his character would look like. And so he solved that by sending Jesus, who was God, to earth. So what he did, what he said, who he did it with, how he did that, all becomes important. It all tells us a story. And I want to tell you, the story that we see in the scriptures is pretty incredible. God, king of the universe, could have come with an army, set up a throne, and said, worship me, and he would have been right to do so, because he was worthy of that. And instead, he came as a baby. He came as a baby that would offer you a choice. And while he was here, he started hanging out with the rejects. The people of his day called them sinners. There was a group of people with that label. And he said, I'm with them. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to spend time with them. They're the ones who need me. He gave his life to that group of people. His core group, a bunch of rejects. There was one educated doctor on there. The rest were fishermen. One was a tax collector. The Jews hated him. But he said, no, you're with me. I love you. I'm going to make a team out of you. His plan 
was to come, face death, take your sin, and offer you a free gift. That was his plan. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to do something that you can't do for yourself. I'm going to take care of this. And here's what we find. We find in the scriptures twice, Jesus interacting with large groups of people who have decided that they are going to withhold their hearts from God. That all they want is a show. They're not really going really to change. They're going to keep going down the path that they're going down. And they've hardened themselves to who he is. And you know what's recorded there in the scriptures? It's not angry. It's not vengeful. It's not keeping track of score so that you can pay. You know what's recorded? A deep sigh. A sense of exasperation. That the compassion that I have for you, you're going to miss out on. By the way, when you start to see it as compassion, you start to see it all over the face of the scriptures. Earlier in the year, I took you to a section of scripture called the triumphal entry where Jesus was mirroring something the Romans did. The Romans would kind of brag about their conquests and victory by entering a town a certain way. And Jesus was doing that same thing. And on that day, people were throwing down their coats. They had palm branches and they were screaming, save us in the city, save us, save us now. It was incredible because that's exactly why he had come. He had to be like on a high that day, just thrilled that he was celebrating his victory. You want to know what the scriptures record? This is Luke 19, 41. So he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. He wept over it. Because he knew inside that city there were groups of people whose hearts had hardened towards him who would never listen to his message. Who would never adopt that. In fact, they would, they would rebel against God. They would rebel against Rome. They would have the temple destroyed and they would be dispersed all over the place. And he looks at the destruction that's coming. And he wept. He wept. The names aren't important. But I was involved with a family that um, they were not a good family together. Dad was harsh. He was angry. It was his way or the highway. He ruled with an iron fist. And as a, a daughter got into her teen years, she got sick of it. And she decided to just start rebelling. And his response to that rebellion was an iron fist. I'm going to demand more. And he was just so angry. And her heart hardened. And it got worse and worse. It's not surprising. She ends up dating a guy much like her dad. He's angry, except she's in high school and he starts to hit her and be physically abusive. She becomes pregnant. And uh, the family knows that if she doesn't get out of this situation, this is probably not going to end well for her. And um, I had an opportunity to be in the room 
when they presented the plan, it was a great plan for how, if she would just follow this plan, she could have a, a different chance at life. Like things would be okay. And so they presented this plan, but in the presentation of the plan, Dad presented it with anger and said, you're going to do this. And her heart was hard towards him. And she said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to go with this guy, and I don't really care what you say. And we all knew it was going to go badly. I didn't know how to interject in anything. I felt lost, honestly. There was so much rage and anger in the room. I didn't see how it was going to turn out well. I didn't, I didn't think anything was going to go well. And then the unthinkable happened. Dad reached the end of his anger. He didn't have any left. And instead, uh, he broke down and started sobbing in that room. I think it shocked everybody. I don't think they had ever seen him cry before. And for the first time, maybe in her life, she realized that this dad, who was so angry, was so demanding, was so iron-fisted with her, actually had a heart of compassion and love for her. And I watched everything. I watched everything in that room change. When she realized that the heart of her father loved her. And from a position of love, she started to consider that maybe your plan was out of love too. And she took it. And she stepped into a new life. Can I just tell you, I, I think this story of God, this angry, vengeful God, who threatens you or else, has become such a story that many of us have held God at arm's length, too afraid to let him close because we don't want to get bit by that angry God. We don't want to get beat up by that angry God. And I want to tell you right now, if that's the story that you've been believing about God, I think you've missed his character. I think you've missed the God who could have been angry in the face of crowds of people who were rejecting him, who only wanted to see a sideshow, who only cared about their entertainment. And instead of an angry response, his heart broke for those people. He had compassion for them. And it's exactly how he feels towards you. He loves you. He's a God of great mercy who came to rescue us from ourselves. And until you can accept that message and until you get the right picture, you might hold the very thing that you need at arm's length. You might not ever accept that you're broken and a mess and in need of God. But we all are. And if you would stop long enough to get the right picture of his character and his love, you could enter into a new chapter that would change your story forever too. I I want you to think about that 
as the band plays a song. Uh, They're going to play a song about God's great mercy. And I want you to ask yourself, is that the picture that you have of God? This merciful, great God who's come to give you life. I was dead in my transgressions, wandering in sin. I went searching for redemption down the road that had no end. I was walking through this fire. I was living on the run with my flesh lost in desire. I was drowning in the flood. But God, in mercy you came to save me now I'm alive but God strong and mighty you reached out for me so I could rise now I'm alive I am far from There are days that I regret On this battlefield I struggle With the lies that I have lived I have fallen short of glory I can't make it on my own If you keep record of my past I've been shaking like a stone But God, rich in mercy You came to Ah!